welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. everybody and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I am Anthony Whitaker. So where do I start with this? Well, you may not realize it, but I always record this introduction after I've recorded the interview and then I edit them together. I've just finished today's interview with an old friend and New York City salon and school owner, Nick Arojo, and I don't mind saying that it's had a profound impact on me. I've known Nick since the early 80s when we both worked at Sassoon in the UK, and since then, he's been one of those success stories building an incredible business in New York, one of the toughest cities in the world. I love success stories, and at times like these, I think we need them more than ever. But successful people are not successful because they don't have challenges to overcome. They are successful because they have challenges, but they overcome them. Nick is a salon owner like most of the audience listening to this, and like everyone, he is also having challenges due to the impact of COVID. But the honesty and humility of this interview rams home more than ever what this is really doing to people's livelihoods and the future of this industry. In today's podcast, we discuss the impact that COVID is having on his business, the changing business models, and the impact that that's having on the future of the hairdressing industry. And as an added bonus, you're gonna get to see what leadership, courage, and optimism looks like, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to my guest today, Nick Orojo. Great to be here, Anthony. I'm looking forward to talking. I'm looking forward to hearing what you wanna ask me uh, about my journey. Well, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued after the warm-up conversation we've just had. I think it's going to be a great podcast. I think they're all great podcasts, but uh, I know you're a very open, honest book, and uh, you've got lots to share with our audience. It's relevant no matter where you live in the world, whether you're in you know, uh, the United States, the UK, Australia, or any of the other places that this podcast goes out to. So, Nick, let's start off with an overview of who is Nick Arojo. If you just give us a, a, a short sort of you know, two or three-minute um, intro on your backstory, and then we can start to dig into the fun bits. Sure. So fell into hairdressing and when I was 16 years of age in 1982, realized that in order to be successful in this industry, I had to learn from the best. Ended up getting to work for Vidal Sassoon in 83. Did my apprenticeship there, worked through the ranks. That's where we met each other. Learned a lot of things from you as one of the artistic directors. Uh, had a fantastic career spanning almost 10 years. Then I left in the early 90s. I was like looking for my next uh, journey, my next chapter. Uh, I ended up moving from Manchester to London and I worked for Weller. So I went into more corporate uh, manufacturing type role, which was phenomenal for two years. But my real dream was to come to New York and it always had been. And uh, in, 1980, in 1994, I landed on the, on the shores here of New York City and uh, worked for a company called Bumble and Bumble, which was a company that I uh, followed and admired from afar. So I got my dream job and I got my dream. Worked for Bumble for a short period of time, to be honest with you. 
because I realized that in America, I did have the potential to fulfill this American dream of mine. And I broke free after three years as the education director at Bumble, running all of the education, the training, getting involved in the product. I opened up a salon called the Rojo Cutler. It's a very successful salon in Midtown. We were an Evader affiliate salon. Uh, I was in that partnership for four years, and then I, I decided to venture out completely on my own and uh, opened up a Rojo studio uh, in 2001. And at present, we've, uh, we have uh, a school. We're in the cosmetology business. We're in the advanced academy business. I have two salons, down from three due to COVID. And, uh, and I have two different lines of hair care products. One is um, the Orojo product, which is a professional brand that we sell to salons across, uh, across America. And then uh, we reinvented what used to be known as the permanent wave. I have a brand called American Wave. So we brought out a waving lotion and some support products to, to manage to, to help support the, the styling of the reinvention of the permanent wave. So today it's uh, 2020. I'm living in the future and um, it's been one heck of a year. So that's my journey. Yeah, okay. Right. Um, well, lots of boxes to tick there. Lots of lots of dreams fulfilled and no one could have anticipated the absolute shitstorm, excuse my language, that we're living through at the moment. And you, you just alluded to the fact that you're uh, you've dropped the salon, that you've gone from three salons uh, down to two due to COVID. So let's yeah, and, and let's two schools straight in. I went two, from two, two schools down to one, you know. Wow. So. Yeah. Okay. So, so a big hit. Okay. So, so let's talk about that. What, uh, I, I know that, uh, that, you know, New York, Manhattan has been really heavily, hardly hit. So talk about what the journey has been like for you in 2020 and, uh, and, and, you know, where you're, where you're at at the moment, as far as, you know, you've closed the school, you've closed the salon and all the, the repercussions that that's having for you. Let's preface that a little bit because there's so much to the journey. Because when you're uh, trying to build a business, you're always trying to build a business. There's no stop. You don't turn off and go, I'm just going to pass you now. You're in it to win it. New York's a tough place. That's why they say if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. Mm. You know, there's a kind of chaos in New York, which is unlike any that I've witnessed in my life. Pre-2020, Pre, we'd had a tough year of challenges 2019, and I really had to buckle down, double, double hard. I saw the industry change with this new kind of uh, social media has made hairdressers become so much more uh, independent and their desire to go independent. So I could see the moments of change happening. The winds of change were happening with successful stylists who I'd built starting to go independent. So I was trying to plug that hole. Also with my products, I went into distribution and I realized that distribution distributors were not working for me or the ones that I was working with wasn't working for me. So I took that back. So when I turned the corner for 2020, uh, I'd been working so hard in 2019 to kind of stem the tide. We got into January and you don't count your chickens until they've hatched. And January was absolutely phenomenal. I was starting to see progress with all of my hard work. Um, and February was looking really strong. And then we started to hear about this virus that was from China. Yeah, that's what we started to hear. I was doing a photo shoot on March the 2nd in my Brooklyn location, new campaign. And I get this Instagram message from a lady from Italy who I didn't know. 
And she wrote to me on a direct message and it was kind of like, it was like a surreal thing. She said, we're dying in the streets. Please, 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 please. And I thought that is such a weird thing. Two weeks later, uh, we shut down the salons. We shut down the business. And we said, we're going to close the business and we'll reopen on April the 1st. Now, everybody ran to the hills. And we closed a week before we were mandated to close because obviously we could feel the temperature of the, um, of the street and the environment. So we said, let's close early. We'll be back in business April 1. The end of March, uh, the president decided that, you know, the country was going to be closed for 30 days. There was a whole process called flattening the curve where we don't want to overwhelm the hospitals. But because of the politics as well in this country right now, I could see this issue was blowing up uh, in many different ways. And I suppose with my experience, I could see the writing on the wall. How are we going to be able to do hair when you're not allowed to be closer than six feet to any other human being? Mm -hmm. uh, and I was watching the politicians. I was watching the politicians in California, the, the governors that I didn't know. And I started to study and understand you know, where we were. And we were in a new zone and an unknown zone. And um, after uh, April passed by, then we started to get into May. At this point, I was literally working every day. You think about people were told to stay home. Well, because sh selling shampoo is uh, essential, deemed essential, I still ran my business. And I have an online business and I kept my online business moving and I was in the facility. It was kind of like therapy for me to come here every day, service my clients and try and keep some liquid moving forward. Plus, we kickstarted our remote school learning. So we were very active in trying to kickstart that because my business went on life support. And once my business went on life support, I was like, how the heck am I going to get this business back up and running? And I have to tell you, probably the toughest time of my life. Uh, as we were navigating, talking to, to the three different landlords that I have, uh, talking to my team, literally my entire team uh, wigged out. Um, when it came time to reopen the facility, we were doing distance learning with the school. When it came time to reopen the facility, uh, that was becoming very problematic because I was, I was, I was basically going to be starting my business with a million dollar debt. Now, I don't know about you, but I know you do know the industry. It's hard to pull a million dollars profit and you still have to pay tax on a million dollars profit. So starting with that kind of debt just seemed like a, a no starter for me. So I bobbed and weaved and ducked and dived and ultimately managed to reopen my Soho location. The entire team, all 80 percent of the team went left. All my stylists went independent. Well, right. Everybody. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I lost all my hairdressers. It was me. I have my wife, a couple of young, young guys stuck around. A couple of hairdressers stayed with me and then they quit shortly after. I don't know whether they were just filling up their boots with more uh, potential clients. I, I have no idea, but I think for everybody, this whole uh, time has been a game changer and a time for reflection. And what I say is, as I say that, you know, we were moving in a certain way with the digital arena and a digital platform. Uh, we're looking at technology kind of coming more and more into our lives. It's changed what we do. 
Um, but this, uh, this pandemic's kind of threw everything over the cliff. And it's basically changed the entire landscape of, uh, of where I live, which is New York City. And obviously now we're uh, fighting to uh, restart and, uh, and, and create and continue on the journey in the past. So it's, it's been a difficult, difficult time. Uh, just absolutely, you know, mind boggling. I, I was mentioning earlier, we closed our Tribeca location. I opened that location uh, six years ago and it was a massive leap and it's a 13,000 square foot space. And I spent over a million dollars renovating it then. In 2019, I, I set up another construction project to make it even better. And uh, we plowed $700,000 into renovating that in 2019. And now 2020, we don't have it at all. So there's been a financial hit. Uh, there's been an emotional hit. There's been a change. There's a changing of the guard. Literally every manager, every team leader, all gone. So I'm really starting my business now, not from the beginning. I'm starting my business with, um, with the kind of payroll that was affordable when, because your infrastructure is your payroll. So you've got your finance team, you've got your marketing team, you've got all of these people. Now you've got new leadership people in the salon, but we don't have necessarily have the business because the landscape's changed so much. It has been one hell of a journey, and it continues every day to be uh, a fight for survival and a mm. tough battle. Okay. So, wow, I know we preempted this conversation before we started recording, but you didn't give me that sort of detail. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really, I'm rocking back yeah. in my chair here. Um, so so uh, how many staff did you have January 2020? Oh, we had about 95 staff. And so what are you down to now? 20. 20, right. So you, 20. you, you And they're all new. Yeah. They're all new. Yeah. Okay. So basically what happened, Anthony, the staff started to bug out. There was a, there was a thread here in, in America, which was, um, there was t number one, it was like the perfect storm. The younger team members and the less successful stylists were getting so much money off the government. They were making more money not working than they were working. Yeah. Okay. So then the other thing is, is you, you don't know if you have this virus and you can become a spreader. So no one wants to take it home to grandma. Mm. Okay, so you've got two big hurdles there to get your team back to work, mm. all right? And at the, every week that passed by, the team became further and further away. Now, one of the things that I think is very important to reflect on for me personally and to share is most, let's say, hairdressers, you start off and you, you're, you're the owner of the salon, you bears your name or it bears the name that you chose, and you're the glue. When you go from being a salon to building a brand, you have to replace glue behind you. You're not the glue anymore because now I'm the figurehead for the brand. So I'm split across three, three arenas, platforms. I've got to be focused on the educational platform. I'm focused on the salons, not a salon. And I'm focusing on my product uh, brands. So I kind of not, I won't say remove myself from the salon because I'm still busy doing clients and I was still doing more clients pretty much than anybody in 2019, yeah, there was a couple that were probably doing more because of my travel schedule, but I'm still plowing 20 to 40 clients a week, okay? So basically, as we went down this path, the journey, um, the staff started to bug out. They didn't want to come back to work. They were very concerned about coming back to work. 
And then when we had the riots, when we had the riots, then opening a salon became so secondary to the social injustice. Yeah. So while I'm trying to fight for my uh, survival and for their survival mm. uh, to get my business back up and running, it became apparent that the team were very focused on uh, safety for themselves and then this social injustice. And, you know, they called me out for trying to open my salon when there were bigger things at play. So I knew that I was running into heavy headwinds with yeah. the morale of the team. When we eventually came to get to that point to reopen, the whole thing just fell to pieces. So, you know, I called my general manager in and I said, okay, it's your job now to open up the salons. I can feel this tension. You're going to open up the salons. The best thing to do is call the team leaders, pull them in, pull all the front desk team in, and we've got like 10 days to, to reopen the salon. And instead of opening three salons, let's open one because we've got a big platform, a big um, footprint here. I've got like 70 chairs in this location. The school's closed. So I said, we can use the school because the school has two dedicated salons and we'll start here. And when we start here, then we can slowly start to build from there. But it's much better if we're together trying to re reopen than it is trying to reopen three locations from, from yeah. like zero. Well, that was on the Friday, uh, my manager was in, we had that conversation on the Saturday, you know, the team was in, everyone was getting fully booked, the clients were just getting packed, it was uh, getting really busy. And the Sunday, we took a day off, and we were not supposed to open till the following Friday. On the Monday morning, actually on the Friday, one of my team leaders in Tribeca resigned, told me she wasn't coming back, she went to do her own thing. Uh, on the Saturday, the team leader from my Williams location, she'd gone on vacation. Uh, I had another team leader here in Soho that had gone back to Europe, gone on vacation. And, and then on Monday morning, my general manager decided that she was uh, not going to come back. So now the person that was trusted to reopen the business uh, was no longer there. And with the mood and the climate, it seemed like it was going to be impossible to get open. Mm. Um, and the landlord as well was very difficult to manage. So we had all of these challenges and ultimately ended up literally by, uh, by that weekend that everybody had, um, had decided to leave. So we, we opened anyway. Uh, and we had a small team came in. We was very busy. I know I was very busy. Uh, my wife was busy with the husband and wife team. So uh, I've got my, my niece and my uh, sister-in-law. So the family unit helped to keep this business uh, creating a little bit of liquid. And then we shut down Soho completely and we all moved to Brooklyn because I knew that we couldn't sustain Soho and the landlord was not in a forgiving mood. Once that happened, there's so many different pieces to this jigsaw puzzle. It's like a major Ruby's Cube. Once you turn one, the square changes to something different. We all went to Williamsburg, and I thought, you know, probably the only location I may be able to have is Williamsburg. And uh, I was in my Brooklyn salon in Williamsburg, which is a very cool salon. It's a 32-chair shop. It's beautiful. And I kept on saying, we're, go we're, we're really going to be great for the for the world today because we do have an abundance of space, which is unheard of in New York. Mm -hmm. um, 
Brooklyn was fantastic. But as and, and I started to get more freedom with my landlord here in Soho, and I did realize that if I didn't keep the, the mothership, I call this the mothership, this is the flagship location, the Soho location, it's 12,500 square feet. I said, if I, uh, if, I can, if I don't keep that open, if I can reopen it. So that was my commitment to reopen it and to continue on this journey. Um, the salon... Uh, we came back from, actually, we reopened the Soho location with in-person learning with our students first. We did construction. We did renovation. We changed the footprint round, modified it so it works for today's environment. Things like no more coat check, gone. Coat check's a thing of the past for me. Uh, sorry, not coat check, but a changing room. We'll hang up your jacket. But we're not, we're not giving you a change room to go and change. We got rid of all the robes. We're trying to make the experience as clean and as seamless and touchless as possible. Uh, we created a, a bigger lounge here because I closed my school in, so in Tribeca. So I, I had absorbed all the students into my Soho location. And we created the lounge, which is about a 2,500 square foot facility now that the students can adequately manage while staying socially distant. A week later, we brought everybody back to the salon and that's been fantastic and we're back in the salon. We've started to hire a new person every week. I put together a whole new infrastructure. I put the template down. It's like, well, where do you start? You start by putting in the infrastructure, which costs you a lot of money. So from an infrastructure standpoint, uh, you know, you need your leadership, your management, you need your front desk management, all new, all new. So, I mean, there's so many things that I've learned about my business because I've had to go down into every nook and every cranny from the cleaning schedules to uh, how to pack a box and how to ship something. Uh, it's been pretty remarkable. Uh, we're now bringing in a color team leader. And, uh, and then in the product side, we lost everybody there. Uh, we brought people in on the product side to help with the product support. And then on the education side, we brought in some new teachers because one of the biggest challenges that we're having even today is now the, the teachers don't want to come back. Yeah, they don't want to come back to work. So I'm actually having to hire double the amount of teachers than I need. A, because you can only teach 50% capacity of what you could teach. Well, so a teacher can only teach uh, eight students as opposed to 16. And B, we have teachers that don't want to come back to the facility that often. So we're having to navigate that challenge right now. How do we fiscally manage uh, to run the business? So every day we open, I'm losing money. Even today, I'm losing money every day because I've invested in, in the infrastructure. And now the hope is that we can um, rebuild in a way that's better and stronger and smarter but the other challenge that we have is New York has lost so many residents. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people have left this city. And now you're also looking at a city that is getting scarier like it was in the 80s. When I first came to New York in 94, you would see some pretty radical things with uh, homelessness, on the street, like living, it was so visible. That disappeared for 20 years, yeah. but now that's kind of back. So when I'm talking about you walking to work, 
there's people lying on the floor and there's people asking you stuff and talking to you. So you've got to have your wits about you. So we have a, a different environment. Um, but, you know, my motivation really, I'll be honest with you, what else am I going to do? This is my dream. I've got my dream. I'm going to fight for it. And I'm fighting for it every, every day. And no matter how painful it is, I just got to turn up and I got to try and get some normalcy back. And I, I do the best that I can. And in some regards, it's more exciting because I've got new people to mold. And as I said to you a little bit earlier, you know, I, I kind of, I wasn't the glue for the salon. Now I have to be the glue for the salon because mm. I've got to rebuild what the future of my business is going to look like. So yeah. it's a big challenge. Yeah. Wow. Um, like the people listening to this, I'm just going, wow. You know, <laughs> everyone's got problems. Um, you've got some big challenges in front of you, um, but you've done it once. So there's every reason to assume that you can do it again because you don't become the success that you became uh, just because you're lucky, you know? So, um, you know, let, let me back up a bit there. I was really happy just to hear you just going with the flow of what you were talking about. Uh, there was a few things you, you, you touched on. You know, one of them was about how you lost all these staff who just didn't want to come back. And yeah. you'd sort of preempted that at the very beginning when you said in 2019, you could sense a change. Yeah. And you know, that, that movement in, in the U.S. is more prevalent than anywhere. It's happening everywhere, but it's certainly more prevalent in the U.S. of the whole independent contractor, booth renter, salon suite thing yep. is, is changing the face of business. Yep. And uh, so what I'm asking you is this, is when they didn't want to come back, was it because they wanted to uh, uh, go into a salon suite environment because they felt more protected or was it just because the government were paying them more money to stay at home? So why not do that? I think it was the fact that when you're, listen, you're, you're out of your norm for three and a half months, you've got more time to think than anything. And my hairdressers have been trained really well and they've worked in a really great environment. And they've all come from my school. 90% of my team has come from my school. So just in life, I always say that after a number of years, your hairdresser is going to start looking out of the window. So you have to have a great farm system. And I lived through this, and I've been in Sassoon's years and years ago, and you knew there was a walkout in a certain place. And yeah. Sassoon always had the capacity through their education to fill it. Today's young person wants to come out of cosmetology school and they want to earn money. And I think that this opportunity uh, for everybody to sit and reflect and to realize that you can now run a business out of your iPhone mm. through the palm of your hand. And I think that if you're a hairdresser and you go around to do Gina's hair, who was a client that's been coming to you for five years, and all of a sudden, Gina gives you the $100, and you put that $100 into your bank. And you think, if I go back to work in the salon, I'm only going to get $35 as opposed to getting 100 And we're living in a very smart age. So I think that everybody just decided that, A, uh, the reason of like being safe was an issue that they brought up. But I've studied that socially. Because the most nervous people uh, I'll see, I'm having to tell them, listen, social distance. 
listen, put your masks on, make sure your visors are on. So when they, they say something, but then they don't necessarily, uh, I don't see them deliver on the same commitment that they had to me. Like, Nick, how are you going to keep me safe? And now I'm going, well, guys, you've got to keep yourself safe. And I'm doing that. So I think that that was maybe just like a good talking point. Yeah. I think, I think the, 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 the real thing is there was, a, there was pockets of people together within my salon and those pockets of people have gone in pockets to either independent or to other salons. And because I don't, um, I don't, I run my business very clean and very straight. And there's only a certain amount of money that one can actually give someone when they're on commission. But for a salon owner who's got a salon, he can easily give 10% extra because he never paid for anything. And 10% of uh, something is, is more than what they were getting anyway. So I, my staff have always found homes. I've bought so many salons in this city yeah. where, you know, they get one hairdresser. The next minute they've got five of my hairdressers. And the reason why hairdressers can either go independent now or the reason why they can go to other salons is because everyone's traceable. So the loyalty and the accessibility to a person is stronger now than it ever has been. And, uh, and I think that's kind of part of the, part of the journey and part of the process. Yeah. Okay. Um, all my notes I've thrown out the window, uh, <laughs> and I'm just, <laughs> you know, because this is far more important than to talk to you about the stuff I was going to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, I know that you said that you closed one salon in school. Yeah. Um, I know that there are other salon owners that are going to be listening to this all around the world um, who are in uh, financial hardships. Um, yep. You know, there's been new announcements made just today about, you know, the situation in the UK and, you know, getting nearer to going back into some second sort of closed lockdown thing. And, yep. and it will be the end for lots of businesses without a doubt. Um, you've made a decision to walk away from one. Can you talk about what, what that involves for you? What, like, what are the financial and legal challenges that, you know, you can't just close the door and give the key back to the estate agent and walk away. Yeah. You know, what, what's the risks that you're exposing yourself to by doing that? So as a businessman, I've always been very focused on the business side of stuff. Okay. So when you, and you enter into a lease in New York, uh, it's a commitment. It's a contract. And there's no way out of the contract unless there's a viable reason, okay? And the viable reasons usually come in a force majeure, which is an unintended consequence that nobody could have ever predicted, okay? But it's a, it's a contract that is, they've got the upper hand. The landlords in New York City have the upper hand. Landlords all over the world have the upper hand because they've got the money, the resources, and the revenue to be able to tie you up. So every day... Across the three platforms, the three locations that I have, 30,000 square foot of real estate space that I rent, my rent was $7,000 a day. So every day that passed by was another $7,000 that I owed to one of the three landlords, or to all the three landlords, depending on the scope. So my Tribeca location was $90,000 a month, plus the tax. My Soho location that I'm in now is $90,000 a month plus the tax. And my Brooklyn location, 15 plus the tax. So Brooklyn's very affordable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, different demographic completely. Well, not completely, but a different demographic and a different cost. But my two big locations were salon schools and, um, 
as I started to talk to the landlords, they said, you know, we're going to push this further back. You're just going to defer it, defer it, and then you'll pay it next year, the year after. That was the start point. I didn't get lawyers involved because that all comes at a cost too. And I've done, give so much to attorneys over the years that I learn every day. Yeah. So I started negotiations on my own. Uh, my Tribeca landlord, I really wanted to keep Tribeca. That was like my, my favorite, my favorite, to be honest with you. We just invested $700,000 at a 75-seat theater in the location. It was a smaller salon, 26 chairs, a bigger footprint. We've just started aesthetics. We just put in this brand new barber zone that was all the furniture was purchased. It's all gone now. I purchased this whole zone. We've just done so much in renovating and making the space like, amazing like amazing um but it didn't have our corporate headquarters in there our offices which is where our servers it didn't have our, our warehouse we have a warehouse here so there were some elements that we didn't have and as i was negotiating with uh, all the landlords you know let's just focus on the small landlord they were like don't worry about it nick we're fine we'll get back to you when this all settles down so we'll put that landlord out of the way i just forgot about that that landlord didn't care I told all the landlords I'm not paying them a penny until we can settle on the future. The Soho landlord and the Tribeca landlord both wanted me just to carry forward the debt. So I was looking at carrying forward five months worth of rent as a debt that I would have to repay with no revenue coming in. That was not going to work for me. So I was prepared pretty much to shut everything down because I was forced into it because I know there's no point trying to hang on to something that you're no is going to fail. It's like we're just plowing money into a fail. So as, we, as this prolonged, I actually got my attorney involved. My attorney was very clear. Now, my attorney has a good relationship with my Soho landlord, and they managed to craft an amazing deal, which I could not believe. Uh, and the fact that they crafted this deal enabled me to still have a chance to survive. The Tribeca landlord didn't want to speak to my attorney, they just wanted to speak to me and they kind of, um, you know, they would have the upper hand because they're having these discussions every day. You know, I'm not saying it's easy for the landlord because they've obviously got, they've got to answer to pay the bills too. They've got to answer to the banks. I get the whole process. But I'd said to the landlord, why do you not just take for every month we're closed, add it to my lease. I've got 10 years left. I'll pay a 13 month year every year. I can afford that. They said, no, we're not going to do that. You've got to pay it all in two years or three years. And as this progressed, I started to look at the climate outside because I was in work every day. I'm talking, Canal, I'm talking Canal Street, Varick Street, Spring Street. We're talking ghost town. We're talking nobody here. All you see is moving trucks and all you see is crazy people on the streets. So the problem became worse. And I'm like, even if we can get open, no one's going to be here. And then what had also happened is all my staff left. So I still had these spaces pre the team disbanding completely. And if the team would have stuck together, then maybe there would have been a little bit more hope for me to retain my Tribeca location. Ultimately, I'd, um, I exercised my good guy guarantee. I walked away from Tribeca. It cost me probably $30,000 in cleanup to clean the space out, empty it, give it to them in a perfect condition. I literally stripped all of my furniture and furnishings out. It's in storage. And what a job to do that was just uh, 
like so much work. But I did that. Uh, luckily, I have some great people here that just were like supportive of me and they really helped me get through that piece. And now the landlord sends me the bill. So right now, the landlord is sending me the bill. I owe them $400,000. Every month, there's another $100,000 there or thereabouts that I'll be owing. And the courts are closed. So as soon as the courts reopen, then the landlords will be taking me to court and they will be suing me for breach of contract. So I'm going to head into the headwind of a legal battle. The other problem that I have is I have schools that are federally funded, which means I have the ability to fund a student through the federal government. The problem with that is I have a federal audit. I have a state audit that I have to pay for every year to comply because we have to have compliance through uh, certain agencies that make sure that we're good for the money. So the yearly audit will show all of your exposure. If your exposure is too high, there's a, you're going to lose your federal funding. Right. So right now we're running into a real headwind of uh, potentially losing the federal funding and uh, obviously trying to navigate and negotiate a kind of get out of this this contract. Ultimately, it'll end up in court. Uh, I believe that it won't be favorable for the landlord to take me to court because of the circumstances. Um, they can't come after me technically, personally, but everything can change. As you know, the rules of the world changes all the time, but they can come after my business because the business, when you have a business, you have a, an LLC or an ESCOP, that's the shield that you own. And the negotiation for the lease is not with me and the landlord. It's with my, it's with my businesses. So I have exposure to my product, my salon piece, and my schools because those three enterprises are tied to the lease that I walked away from. So the journey is nowhere near over, but the marker has been set. Yeah. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm actually looking at more space right now. I'm not. I've changed my, changed my, uh, you go from, and, and it happens daily, you go from victim to survivor daily, sometimes hourly, depending on how strong you feel or how weak you feel, depending on what you get hit with uh, on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I'll tell you what I talk about hit. I close my school, I get a $50,000, I've got a $50,000 assessment fee that I've got to pay for my school because mm-hmm. they have a special assessment because the government decided three years ago that schools have to pay an assessment, but now we're going to put in another assessment and nobody, nobody challenges it. There's no one defending the school owner in my, in my opinion, which is like another thing that I'm now having to deal with. So you get all these things, all these hurdles, all these things that are coming at you. I'm pushing forward and, um, and I'm a firm believer that um, as long as I just turn up every day, do the best that I can, I think I'll be able to navigate my way forward. And even if ultimately everything hits the fan and it all breaks up, I'm already thinking about what the future is. So I'm not just, I'm not trying to, it's very important for everybody who's listening. I'm not trying to go back to where I was. I am not trying to rebuild to where I was. That's not where I'm at. It may look like I'm doing that, but I'm actually trying to look at what the future of our industry should be and what my future should look like. That's what I'm focusing on. Okay, and, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting. 
yeah, yeah. No, that's that's amazing. Um, again, I just want to go back and dig in a little bit there. Uh, I, I've been, you know, reading and hearing lots of people talking about the amount of salons that are predicted to close um, everywhere. You know, whether I'm talking to uh, about the UK market or you know the Australasian market or whatever. In the US, I hear figures that range anywhere between 20% of salons won't be able to reopen. Uh, is the low 20% is the low. Uh, and they t- they go about as high as forty percent the predictions. Yeah. That is that is absolutely devastating for this industry if if that is the reality of it. Um, in Manhattan, from what you're describing, that sounds like a oh yeah, very much so. That will be what's going to be happening here. Are you seeing a lot of salons around you that just haven't reopened that people have walked away from? You know, I've heard salons that have not reopened. But I'm not focused on that, nor do I care. I'm just pure and simply focused on me. What I will tell you is 50% of our clients are not coming back into Manhattan. And and 25% of our clients have left the city. So Manhattan is surrounded by water. And then you have, uh, you've got New Jersey. You're surrounded by three states. You've got New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, and New York. Yeah, New York State. So people have fled to New Jersey. They fled to uh, upstate New York, where the housing market's hot, and also out into Long Island, where the housing market's hot. Because of now, all of, where, I, where, I, where I work, it's all office space. Yeah. So no one's coming back to the offices. Yeah? They were to- everyone said, we're not coming back to work until, uh, as in physical office space, until spring Definitely not until next year, and then definitely, definitely not until uh, the spring. But what's happened is that's been so devastating that the finance, I mean, at the end of the day, who's going to suffer the most? The banks. So the financial institutions have decided to bring all their workers back because they know that if they don't bring their workers back, this city's going to collapse. Mm. There's just no way the coffee shop's going to stay open, let alone the hair salon. Yeah? Yeah. I, um, There'll be a lot of closing, and there's a lot of movement. Uh, if you're looking for an apartment to rent, I, I lived through September the 11th. Now, this is much greater uh, in impact than September the 11th. I started my business yeah. uh, uh, the week before September the 11th. And while Manhattan Uptown was ticking along nicely, downtown was decimated. Okay? You, move, you can go two miles in New York. It's like going maybe 25 miles in England. You get such a big change. Yeah? In fact, you can turn a corner and you're in a different spot. Turn the street, you're in a different yeah. spot in, in New York City. When the price comes down, the people come in. So opportunity will come back. So the question is, is how do we sustain it while we are in this moment of flux? Mm. And I do believe that uh, we will evolve and develop, but I think it's got to be a different business model. I don't think it's going to be the same business model. And, yeah. and, and statistically, if you look at American hairdressing, 50% of the workforce is, is, a, is salon, a salon with W2 employees, and 50% is independent. Yeah. Okay. Just, just explain what W2 employees are to our... Okay, a W2 employee is an employee, someone that gets paid on commission or on salary, 
to that individual. So I'm a typical stylist business model. I work, you pay me to teach me, you pay me when I become a hairdresser, I get commission. The better I get, the more commission I get and the more my price goes up. Uh, but the tax is taken out of your pay yeah. uh, before you get your actual check. Yeah. An independent manages that whole business themselves. So we say if you're an independent hairdresser, you're basically a salon owner, but you're your only employee. Yeah. So you're looking at a 50-50 split now in America. And you're also looking that there's a 20% trend for uh, independence to grow. It's growing at 20%. Mm. So the business model of independence is growing much greater than the W-2 salons and, and, and the salons that have employees. Yeah. Because in America, you know, people are much more um, autonomous and I think that they want to have more control over their future. And because you have to go to school to get a license, I mean, I've seen it myself where a hairdresser, a 25, a 29, a 30, whatever age, but let's just say not a teenager, okay, traditionally, like a, a mid-20 uh, Female, because many female have many female people coming into like eighty four percent female in hairdressers are female in America. They're coming out of my school with a license, and the license means the license to do hair. And I can tell you, if they've got good communication skills and they've got the charisma and they've got the business acumen, then they can literally. They don't need to go and get a training program. They don't need to go and work in a salon for two years and train. Mm. Yeah, they can hit the ground running. If you look at what's accessible and what's out there today, if yeah. I wanted to learn how to do something, I would go online right now. I could find out to do it and I could do it. And because of my experience in life, I could pretty much do it fairly well. So I think that there'll be more of that. Yeah. And I think the demographic of what we're doing is going to, or the way in which we're doing business is going to change. Yeah. And what do you think? You see, see, it is actually a similar thing in the UK, not as extreme. What we now have here, uh, the National Hairdressing Federation say 54% was the last statistic I saw of people are self-employed as in this hairdressing industry. So independent business unit of one, even though they're working within someone else's salon. With what you're talking about, the obvious question is, is what is the future business model for hairdressing that's going to work. Uh, uh, so let me, try out my, let me try out my idea on you, okay? And the reason why I tried, I'm going to try this out for you right now is because I'm still trying to figure it out. And when it, when it rolls off the tongue easily, mm-hmm. then guess what? It means that it's, sound, it's good. When you have to try and explain it too much, it means that it's not so good. Yeah. So we've got... Traditionally, two different types of model, which we've talked about. You work in a salon and get paid, and they develop you, or you become independent. The challenge I see is, like, look, at where the, look for the challenges so you can create the solutions. Everybody in this WeWork generation was becoming more and more autonomous and independent. Yeah? That's been the trend. We want to collaborate, but we want to be in control of our own destiny. When you go independent, you've got your own four walls and it's just you and your own four walls. And it's only for some because you've got to be highly motivated to be able to do that. And those highly motivated individuals realize that, hey, you know, maybe I'll create my own suites and sell rent suites and do my own thing. They become bigger players. 
For a lot of people going into those small suites or suites and they're on their own, it's a lot to manage. Yeah, marketing, you got to manage your books, you got to manage your products, you got to manage all of the things. You're basically running a business, the cleaning, the this, booking appointments, all of this stuff. So what if we could marry? And what you lose is, sorry to forgive, to, to go back, what you lose is you lose that kind of camaraderie and teamwork and that kind of connection and that vision. So what if we could combine both business models? Yeah, let's not try and force anything. So my vision is, is that Erosia will become, uh, it will become a place that I would be happy to have independence work uh, within my environment, be completely autonomous, but and work within my environment. So how do you do that? So now let's look at uh, what's been a trend over the last 10 years. And I'll go all the way back to Soho House. It's a membership. You join this membership and you can go to this place and you can play inside this place. You can do business, you can do social, you can do entertainment. You've got this connection of people. You know, you're going to be sitting next to, a, you know, people that may be great assets and help for you. You're in there. You're in the club. Yeah. So my concept is we're going to create a membership and people will become part of the membership. So what does the membership tell you? It tells you the rules of business. This is the rules of the club. Okay, so the rules of the club are very simple. Yeah, we, we, we only use these colors. We only use these products. We only use these things. But that's the membership. In the membership also comes the training support that you can have access to or you can pay for. Uh, the opportunity, if you want to be more involved in the brand, you can actually get more involved. That's saying Erosio, you can get more involved in education. We can pay you for that independently. Product. You don't have to stock your products. We'll just give you your products. You can buy your products from us. If, you, if you're a colorist and your technology now is such that you go through a certain machine, which exists, weighs out your color. It comes directly to me or my business. We know how much you've bought from Erosio. So now you don't have to worry about your supply bill. And yet you have this. I mentioned earlier about my lounge. You know my lounge yeah. here that I created? Yeah. So this is like my lounge area where my students and maybe my team or my people that work within me, they're all communal together. And instead of renting a chair, you rent space. So what do you get when you rent space? You get the ability to do that alone that day. You get the ability to, I've got my space. I can do this in this space. Rather than me have let's say at my height, 70 hairdressers working and I'm paying and they're all my responsibility, which I've got to pay. I got to pay for your health insurance. I got to pay for your STEM, which is your taxes. I got to pay for your, your 401k, which is your, uh, you know, your, uh, your pension fund, your pension. I got all these things that I got to pay because it's very costly to have employees now. I could have 250 members of my club, and they can come and go as they please, as long yeah. as they behave within the rules. And then there is uh, something else. When you join, you will get software that will manage your business for you so that you'll have the Erosio branded software. There'll be some kind of co-brand with one of the major players because I've already, I mean, I've been working on this idea around SNF for over two years. So I, think, I think two years I sat in this office with my controller and said, 
the future of commissioned employees is not looking good. Mm. We pay them to train them. We pay them to build them. And the minute they're bringing in $2,000, they're out the door. Yeah. And they take the clients with them. There's, mm. there's just nothing good about that business model anymore. Mm. The business model should be, I'm going to pay you to teach me because I'm going to be completely independent, but I'm going to have this big family around me. So I'm not just going to be on my own in my own little place. And we have the tools. Part of the membership would be tools to promote you socially on social media, weekly, monthly, PR opportunities. And if you get a new client, Anthony, if you was if you was part of, we're calling it the the, you know, we're calling it artisan. I'm an artisan of erosion. Okay, and I've not told many people this, and I've certainly not recorded this. So you're getting this on your podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. Putting the idea out there because guess what. I've never been a guy that's held on to ideas. If mm. somebody takes it and runs with it, great. And I'm not, and it's not like it's so innovative. It's just that I'm looking at what's in the marketplace and I can see where we need to move. And that's why I'm trying to move into that direction. So if you want a client, I get, I get a 50 new clients a week, maybe 75 new clients a week. If you're an independent hairdresser, you're an artisan at erosion, you want to get new clients. I can actually forward you a new client, but it'll come at cost. Now, once you've got that new client, if you get that new client to come back again, it's worth the cost. But if you can't get clients, who's going to get your clients? Mm. So I think that there is a definite new approach to um, how I'm going to look at my future business. And I've already told my employees, they want to have their schedule in their hand. They want to be able to book appointments I want them to run all of their business themselves. I don't want to be cashing out and doing any of that stuff. So what will happen for me in my business? Because right now I have, uh, let's say, 20 W2 employees that work in the salon. Some of them can book 2,000, 3,000. But most of them I'm feeding 15, 20 clients to a week. So I'm giving them the clients because I've got this massive database of clients the hairdressers have all gone because they all went on their own for greater pastures. So now what I'm telling my staff is I'm going to keep everybody in the safety and the security of what we have. But come 2021, if you want to step over into this new business model, which is autonomous, and you pay me as opposed to me pay you, then guess what? You're going to have that ability to do it, but you have to be a member. You have to be a member and you have to obey by the rules and you got to pay and you got to pay up front. And then we went. And then what happens is, cause I thought about this and you know, you've been a business coach for a very long time and I've watched you and as people have sent me your books and I've read them and you've got nothing but abundance of advice. When you become an owner, and I, you was an owner at one point in a salon. The people think you're stealing the money. Yeah. And we're not. I'm not stealing nobody's money. I'm providing a future and creating a future for them. And then they start to have animosity towards you. And I'm like, but I can show you how to be super successful and I can help you. So I, it's not that I need people to, to like want to like me. I just think that this whole mentality of where we've got to uh, is not going to take us into anything greater. So I've got to reinvent how it is. And that's I, I, definitely yeah. what I'm looking at. I, I totally 
100% agree with you. And uh, it's interesting because the path isn't necessarily clear um, as to what the new business models will look like. But that traditional employee-employer-based model is broken, and it's just broken in varying degrees to different countries uh, and in different countries. But it is broken everywhere because the mindset of young people today and the technology they have available to them, it has created this totally different, you know, uh, opportunity. And our industry isn't any different to the the taxi industry or the hotel industry or whatever that have been completely you know, being revolutionized by this gig economy, you know, whether we're talking Uber or, you know, Airbnb or what, whatever it is. And so, you know, I've been talking about something similar. Um, I, 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 I talk about it in the context of it being more of a cooperative. Yeah. And uh, so instead of, uh, uh, of you owning a Rojo completely, you own, say, 30% of it. And the other 70% is owned by other employees. So a little bit like, a legal firm, because it's not a new model. This is what legal firms and accountancy firms and architectural practices have been doing forever, is that once, you know, if you're a lawyer working for me and once you're bringing in half a million dollars a year or something, I make you a partner in the business so that you've got, you know, the golden handcuffs. You're not going to leave and go and open up your own firm. So, you know, you you become a bigger practice by giving people a a share of the business. And this is happening already. Funnily enough, the most unlikely place it's happening in is in China, that right. many businesses in China are, are employee-owned. There will be one person who owns the biggest chunk of it, but then the rest of it is employee-owned. So because they've got skin in the game, they're turning up for work. Do you know what I mean? Uh, they're there packing the boxes, opening the doors, you know, getting the wheels turning again because they've got some skin in the game in terms of are we backing out of this lease or or whatever it is. So, you know, I, I think that, that is, uh, that's fantastic the way that you've described it. I, I often look upon it as what you want to own because you, you, you nailed it when you said, so it's not me paying them, it's them paying me. And, and what you actually end up owning is a marketing company, a financial services company, a legal company, a training company, and they own their own businesses, but they can draw on all the resources that what you own um, has available to them, which makes them more successful. So, so I agree with you. I think that that is um, you know, the sort of thing that's going to be the future of our industry because it's not working the way it is at the moment. And, um, you know, it, it will evolve into something completely different. So, well, I think that we have, I mean, we have brand recognition. We've been in downtown Manhattan. We've been nationally on television. Yep. We have strong brand rec- recognition. We have strong techniques, our razor cutting, our American wave. We have branded techniques and we're going to have branded color techniques that we're going to work on and ultimately speaking i think it's a business model that can expand i think of it as a uh, could be like the new franchise yeah yeah, yeah. It could be the new franchise you could you know like the dry i think about dry bar okay dry bar was like the uh, the nail the nail business mm-hmm. so you look in new york there's a nail salon every corner and then the dry bar comes in, they turn the blow dry business and they realize they can't, it's, you know, they have independent contractors, they have employees, but they just want people to blow dry hair. There's not enough money. So because it's a VC play, they uh, obviously they're building their brand. I mean, the asset today is not the bricks and the mortar, it's the mm. brand. Mm. And for me, it's kind of like looking and saying, how can I keep the Erosio brand buoyant 
while having some of the best talent in the industry work collectively with us, but so that they can have their autonomy and I can still continue to develop a, uh, a brand that I believe that is, refle- is good for the clients, good for the, for the, for the training, the education. Mm-hmm. So definitely enjoyed listening to your concept there on um, how you see the future. And I think that that's how we've got to think. We're, I'm going to do it. I am going to do it. So we're going to find out. Mm-hmm. That is like step one is well, I'm here. I'm back in business. Yeah, and yeah. I'm trying to get the just the blood flowing through the the veins, trying to get the liquid flowing through. You know, like how to. I mean, like we still have challenges. Like we have cash machines here that we've got to get codes and we've got to reprogram. There's all these small elements we don't know of the cleaning pro- process properly, the yeah. inventory system with the color, which is such a cash cow. Once we solve these problems, uh, while while we're solving these problems. We're strategizing so that come 2020, I'm going to be able to say, guys, and I'm going to market to New York. I'm going to say, if you're a hairdresser and you want to be autonomous, you can join my club, this club, and you can be independent. And this club's going to have a whole range of um, things that will help you, A, be autonomous, make Mm -hmm. it easy for you. And... um, and we'll see whether it actually actually works. You know, there's a big thing in this uh, there's a big thing in this country where people love bi coastal. So they like to work Explain in LA. Oh right, okay. They yeah. They work yeah. in LA and then they want to come to New York. There's a lot of yeah. people that wanna they wanna I'd love to just do a week in New York. Yeah. Well under my new business model. That's exactly what I could do. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah. You know, I could have five hundred members mm. as opposed to just having 30, 40, 50 hairdressers, I could have 500 and they can select space, when to do, what to do, how to do, and arrange a suite uh, of opportunities, whether they want to have clients, this, that, the other. So it's in the process and um, and we're going to give it a shot and uh, we're going to give it a shot in 2021. So we'll find out. I'll be able to tell you firsthand whether A, it worked, B, what the problems are and C, what the discoveries. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the beginning of this podcast, you know, the first half of it, I can imagine a lot of people are listening to it like like me, thinking, you know, Nick has got some serious problems. Like I thought I had problems, <laughs> Nick has got some serious problems. And and people will, will fail for you enormously. Admittedly, also, a lot of other people have also got problems. I mean, everyone's got problems at the moment. It's a business owner. It's just a matter of how big their problems are. Your problems have more zeros on the end of them than what other people have. And I suppose what I'm alluding to here is that what's great to see is that you're not broken. You're not bitter and twisted. You're looking at the future. You're looking at opportunity. You're looking at positive things. And you know, as we start to wrap up, I want to, I want you to talk to that part of you that, I mean, you know, you've become incredibly successful schools, salons, TV, product shows, you know, all, all sorts of things that you do, which is what I was going to talk to you about. I, I didn't realize that things had deteriorated to the degree that they have. Yeah. But here I am talking to this guy who is still optimistic. He's still positive. He's still, he's looking at new 
face at the moment. I mean, good on you. I, I just realized um, I am. <laughs> yeah, good on you. So, so, so talk to us about that side of you, because I know there are people listening to this out there all over the world that are salon owners that yeah. have also got problems, yeah. but they're not able to shine a positive light on them. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, how can you sort of talk to that for a few minutes? Okay, so I'm going to go and tell you a little story. It's a long story from a long time ago, and I think it's relevant, uh, very relevant to me, because when I first experienced it, I realized that this was something that was going to potentially could happen to me. Mm. (laughs) That's wild, right? It's wild. So when I moved to London, uh, I had nowhere to live. And I moved from Sassoon, I left, and I moved to London. I was working for well, I had nowhere to live. And somebody told me to go and rent a room at this guy's house in uh, Pimlico. And uh, I went to him and he gave me the top floor. It was like a six-story townhouse. And the guy was an interior designer. And it was absolutely like the most gorgeous place I'd ever been in. Yeah, it was just the most gorgeous home. Everything about it was just just oozed gorgeousness. I was like, oh, my God, how beautiful, how amazing, how incredible. I'd never even experienced anything like that. And he invited me to dinner one night. He said, well, would you want to have dinner? And I sat with him and I, and I said, oh, man, yeah, I was 25, 26. I said, oh, your house is so gorgeous. He said, I'm selling it. I said, what do you mean you're selling it? He says, I'm selling it. My business has took a whack. Uh, I, took a, I said, you're going to sell this gorgeous house? He says, yeah. He says, you know what? If I don't, if I don't sell my, if I keep my house, all I'm going to have is this house. But if I sell this house, I'm going to have enough equity to continue my journey and get me to a place that I can maybe buy another house in the future. And it just stuck with me. And I remember going to bed that night thinking about how difficult that must be to be able to like give up this prized possession that you've obviously worked for, but you can give it up knowing that life is about life. It's not about hanging on. It's about the next chapter, the next journey, giving yourself the opportunity. Ten years ago, when my kids were born, I'd been saving and saving and saving. And I managed to buy a beautiful apartment here in New York City. Yeah. And uh, in Soho, I started walking to work. It was 2,700 square feet, all glass. You know, I put the most, I put over a million dollars down and deposit that I'd saved up, which, you know, I came to America with 1,500 bucks. So I got lucky. I saved. I, you know, I'm a guy from nowhere that just had nothing but just managed. I had a career. And I believed in myself. I managed to get this. And I said to myself, I can't wait one day to be able to pay off this mortgage. It was like a little personal ambition. Ten years later, this year, and I'd forgot. I knew that I'd done really well at paying down my mortgage. And then the, comp- the, the mortgage company, they come and they say, congratulations, you've paid off your mortgage. And I was like, oh, my God, I managed to do it. Now, I sold my apartment last week. I always knew that rather than invest in the stock market, I would put money into property because it's a tangible asset that I need. And while I loved living there for 10 years and it was amazing and incredible and I, and I wanted to keep it because I wanted to renovate it and it'd be incredible. So much like beautiful memories of my children. I've managed to sell my property and that give, selling my property gives me enough liquid to continue on my journey and to continue on my fight. And I do believe that, you know, it's kind of like that story from way back then, coming full circle to today, I always said the most important thing for me, and I tell for everybody, 
is to wake up every day and to say, what can I do today? What kind of purpose? When I think back to uh, when we were closed down, the one thing that was taken away from me was my purpose. And if you don't have purpose in life, then I think it's um, a very sad thing to not have purpose. And I've always had purpose. Yeah, my purpose is to look after my family. My purpose is to where uh, I have an ambitional drive for my industry, which I love. I love what I do. It's my passion. Um, and, uh, you know, as I'm pushing on, you know, I just think that, you know, the material things will come and go. But what, what I have to do is I've always managed to be, uh, I suppose, focused enough to be able to realize, don't get in so deep that there's no way out. Luckily, as I was building my brand, it was like, we'll spend all this on the business and then we'll put this away for, for a rainy day. We'll spend this on the business, rainy day. So as every year passed by, I always tried to make sure that I had enough of a, of a, uh, of a deep bench to be able to financially, you know, kind of navigate. And it was what's helped me sleep at night. So for me personally, liquidating my assets and putting the money into my business, of course, you know, you talk to, you talk to your wife and she'll say, well, don't put that money. I'm like, the most important thing is that we have purpose and we can move forward. I will always make sure that we have enough to survive. Now, what I need is I need a roof over my head and I need food on the table. I need to make sure my kids are safe. Apart from that, I want to stay focused on my dream. I believe better days are ahead of us. I believe that uh, a long time ago when I was lying on the sofa, I saw a man on the television and uh, he was a very positive speaker. And he said, many people underestimate, oh, many people overestimate what they can achieve in a year and they underestimate what they can achieve in 10. That was a Tony Robbins. I never even knew the guy, but I noticed his teeth because in England we didn't have that many people with teeth. So I was like, I got to listen to this guy. His teeth look so good. Yeah. And, and it's been my mantra. And I go back to when I, when I left Arojo Cutler, my salon, and I started up Arojo and I had no money. I had $25,000. And then September the 11th happened. I'd literally turn up to work every day and I'd go, you know what? If I can find one client today, put, uh, if I can sell one more product today, if I can do one more thing today, and if I've got purpose to go every day, no matter how hard it was, I still love cutting hair. I still love working with people. I love being um, innovative. I love innovation. So that's what keeps me alive. And I think that um, people, if you're an, if you're on this planet and you're listening to this, I always say, dream big, work hard, decide what you want, know where you're going, know your destination. My destination's not changed. What's changed is the environment. So now I've got to, re I've got to re-navigate in this new environment and hopefully find, you know, the daylight. But I tell you, the daylight's there. We just have to kind of clear the clouds and stay focused on it. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, that's sort of the perfect place to wrap up, Nick. Um, where can people connect with you on social media? What's your, yeah, what's your Instagram? My Instagram handle, Nick Arojo. You can check it out. We have Arojo NYC is my brand. That's uh, the best ways to connect or see and see what we're doing, see what we're up to. I'm very active on social. I do a thing called Nick at Nine every Tuesday where I interview people. 
it's very candid. It's uh, I've had some great guests. I'm doing it tonight. Um, I know, obviously, this is a podcast, but we have the presidents of all of the associations and team leaders and manufacturers and hairdressers and salon owners. So it's kind of trying to create a voice for the hairdresser. Yeah. And and that's, also, that's on Instagram, is it? That's Nick on Instagram. Nine, on Instagram. Yeah, right, Nine okay. on Tuesday nights. Yeah, and I do a thing called Brooklyn Live, which is uh, edutainment with a uh, with uh, some hairdressing. I do a full makeover every Thursday on Facebook Live, 10 a.m. New York Standard Time. Right. Okay. Okay. So if you're listening to this podcast with Nick Arojo and you've enjoyed it, then please do me a favor: take a screenshot on your phone, share it to your Instagram stories, uh, and also leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate that. Um, so to wrap up, Nick, uh, you know, all my notes completely went by the wayside. I've been completely uh, mesmerized looking at you here over, over, over Zoom as we have this. Um, you have inspired me. Um, I know you will be inspiring other people uh, who are listening to this with your resilience, uh, with your optimism, um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have the, whatever the word is, humility to come on a show like this and be as open and honest and, and giving as what you are. Um, and the fact that you've done that, I, I know that that will, you know, impact on a lot of people's lives out there. You'll never get to know that, that it's done that, but, but you just know that, that that's how the universe works and it will give them strength to keep fighting. So um, thank you. You know, on, you. on their behalf as well as on, on my behalf, um, you're a great visionary. You've built a great business. Um, a lot of people are hurting at the moment. And when they see that people like you are also hurting and see your optimism uh, for the way forward, I, I know that that will, you know, enable them to keep going as well. So, you know, thank you very much for that. And we will look forward to uh, the sequel. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the book. I'll let, I'm, I'm going to write the book. The book is going to be called Roller Coaster. All right, man. Well, listen. Best of luck. I know there are a yeah. lot of people out there rooting for you. Uh, so, uh, best of luck from all of us. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.